0: Right, welcome back to the Sweet Spot Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Lebovich, and I'm here with my boy and my co-host, Mark Abramovich. Mark, why don't you tell everyone what we got on tap for today?
1: What's up, Jake? On today's episode, we've got a very special guest. We've got RJ Michaels, a close friend of mine, but more importantly, the previous director of analytics and assistant coach at the University of Rochester's baseball team. On today's episode, we're gonna talk about RJ's baseball career his role as director of analytics, building trust through success, how to use data effectively, the simplicity and utility of linear regression, evaluating defense, data visualization, going from data-driven insights to creating change, and last but not least, communication and impact.
0: All right. And without further ado, let's welcome RJ Michaels to the show. Welcome, brother.
2: What's going on? How are you guys?
0: Doing well, man. Happy to have you on here. Our first two guests that we had on the podcast, we had Nick Cousia, who's a professional pitcher. We had Matt Ribicel, who is a coach at Franklin and Marshall College. And those were kind of more of the you know development and performance side of things. In our last couple of episodes, however, we've really been taking a deep dive into the data stuff. So we're really happy to have a guy who you know, has some real expertise in this field, kind of blending the data to actual baseball performance, which is cool. So obviously I was a NCAA pitcher and spent time, you know, also training on the development side, professional college, high school level pitchers. Mark obviously was a rower. Um, So why don't you kind of take us through your baseball career through high school and college and kind of catch the audience up on kind of your
2: background? First off, expertise is a nice word. Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as saying I'm an expert, <laughs> but I had a really great experience doing this. Um, at what I thought to be a pretty high level college baseball. Um, and as it rains from Division one, two and three, obviously the talent level changes, but it's very competitive at every level. And, um, you know, at D3, it's phenomenal baseball. So I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, I grew up right in central Connecticut, right outside of Hartford, playing kind of public school growing up. And it was a dream of mine to always play college baseball. So I'm a pretty tall guy, if you know me. So I was kind of stuck at first base growing up. I had the big catch radius and it stuck. I really enjoyed it. Throughout high school, you know, always wanted to play, did the showcases. And I got the chance to go to the University of Rochester to play baseball, which was a real dream come true for me. And first year I was on the team playing first base, having a great time. It gave me like the greatest friends, the greatest structure. It was a real blessing. And then sophomore year, there was a bit of a logjam in my position. And I had to have the tough conversation that everyone has to have eventually in their life, where, you know, either you stop playing due to injury, you stop playing because you're too old. Or in my instance, to be quite, you know, to be truthful, I just wasn't good enough to keep going and i had the hard conversation of it's uh you know time to time to give it up is not room for you to play but i knew i didn't want to let baseball out of my life and i went back to the coach the very next day and kind of pitched him on joining as an assistant coach starting this analytics program and ever since then it really took off for me and uh yeah i would say that's my that's my quick summary former player growing up June to play college baseball lived the dream for a short time, then when told he had to stop, you know, kind of pitched and stuck around with the team that wasn't ready to give up and uh, really took it from there with data.
1: That's a great story. And I obviously had a similar point in my career. Mine was at the end of high school. I had a great opportunity after high school to play for the USA Maccabi baseball team in Israel. And that was pretty much the end of the road for me. Played a little bit of club in college, but nothing really there but great that you were able to find a way to continue in the game with your team and it's really cool what you were able to put together
2: yeah i mean it's hard i mean baseball like playing any organized sport and, uh, and obviously we're baseball guys so use baseball it gives you friends it gives you structure it gives you fitness it, it really like keeps you engaged with like everyday life and being around with your buddies and uh I just didn't want to give it up. I spent my couple hours of morning as a player, which, you know, everyone gets the ability to. And I just wasn't really going to say no. I wasn't giving it up at that moment. And uh, tough conversation, but it turned into the greatest opportunity.
0: And I think that's super, super meaningful that our listeners should try and learn something from, is that eventually there's going to be a time in your life, it could be baseball, it could be something else, that the path you thought you were going to go on eventually comes to an end. And some people get completely halted by that and they shut down and don't really know how to pivot. And the fact that you were able to kind of make something so good out of a tough situation is like phenomenal that you were able to take this love and passion for the game that you had as a player and then transition it onto the data analytical side of things. Like I had a very similar type of situation coming out of college, trying to potentially play professional baseball as you said, it's one of the three, right? I had an injury. So for me, I took all of that love and passion and put it into coaching and player development and stuff like that. And being able to help young athletes kind of go through those physical and mental struggles that I once went through and help guys get to the next level is kind of how I poured all of my love and passion of the game of baseball into the next phase of my career. So the fact that you were able to do that is fantastic. And I hope kind of... Yeah,
2: just, uh, yeah. you know, playing is only one part of the game. There's yeah. a million other avenues you can take. Yeah. And uh, and obviously everyone would love to be the rock star, hitting the home run, you know, winning, winning the games, being, you know, being the closer in the World Series. But uh, there's a lot of different things you can do to still have an amazing love and partake in baseball.
1: 100%. Well, that's a great segue for us, RJ. Why don't you tell us about after you made this transition in your career, what was your role with respect to data analysis and how you were communicating some of those insights to the coaching staff?
2: Yeah, so my role—I was a part of the team, you know, really twenty-four-seven. I was going to practices, I was going to all the games, traveling with the team, being in the dugout. And we were very fortunate. We had like RAP Soto, we had Blast Motion. I tracked the game through Game Changer. I guess if anyone. It doesn't know what those things are so Rapsodo it's kind of a pitching mechanism you put in front of the mound as the ball travels from the pitcher to home plate it collects a ton of data we can go into that more deeply if you want but just it gives you everything you could really need to know to make good decisions on a pitcher and his kind of performance at any given time blast motion is really on the offensive side of things it's a sensor you put on the end of your bat and it's kind of like Rapsodo but for hitters it tracks you know bat angle, hand speed, all this contact information. And we use these equipment You know, in every practice, not in games, obviously. And it gave us a ton of data that I could use on the side to assess. And during games, I mean, you guys probably know what Game Changer is. A lot of kind of AAU travel teams know it as well. And it's sort of a simple tool to track, but it, if you do it consistently, like anything in your discipline with it, it gives you phenomenal data. My role was to take all of that information and spit it out for the coaching staff to try to effect change. And at the beginning, it was very hard uh, in terms of trying to make change with the coaching staff, right? On this 20-year-old kid, just got told he's not good enough to keep playing, kind of, you know, pitched his way back onto the team. So it was hard for me to start down that path. But over time, just as we collected more data, played more games, and like anything over time, you get better and better. Um So to kind of answer your question, my role was I was an assistant coach. I was, you know, director of analytics and I was really like kind of a consultant for the coaching staff when it came time to making decisions, structuring lineups, pitching decisions, you know, they would come to me for assistance.
0: The first thing that kind of comes to my head when you say this is, was it a weird or tough transition at all with your teammates? Like you went from being in the dugout as a peer to all of a sudden transitioning at the same age to being a coach, which even though you were an assistant coach, but you're technically their superior all of a sudden, and you are making these analytical decisions about who should be playing and who shouldn't be playing. And these guys are like your roommates and your teammates. How was that transition for you?
2: It was difficult at first. I mean, you always have to know your role. Like, you know, I'm not the head coach, right? I'm not the one making the final decision. I'm the one making recommendations. So it, it was difficult at first, but I think with anything convincing happens through like effective outcomes. So in the the beginning, if like you don't believe me at something and I make a recommendation and it doesn't work, you're going to continue to not believe me. You're going to continue to not believe in me. I think it really all started when like we saw wins and positive outcomes for me just being another guy on the bench to becoming like a more impactful and valuable person. Like anything, if If you win and you succeed, you have more belief and confidence in yourself. And I mean, my friends were always my friends on the team. So that dynamic didn't change. But in terms of me making recommendations to the coach or me affecting outcomes on the field through like my opinions, us winning kind of helped me catapult into a more valuable position. And with that came more belief with my teammates.
0: A hundred percent. I had a, a very similar Kind of process in terms of when I would get a guy in a pitch design session, right? Like you were saying with a Soto, Trackman, or whatnot, and you have a guy with like a little bit of a lower arm slot, and he's he's trying to explain to me that he wants to throw a curveball, and you know that that's not really what's going to produce the best outcome because of his lower slot. He's probably going to be a guy who throws a slider or a sweeper a little bit better because he's creating that horizontal movement. And he would say, "Well, I want to throw a curveball," and I was I said, "Okay, well." I think that you should throw a slider. So, why don't you throw a curveball and see how much depth you get and then throw a sweeper and see how much horizontal run you get? And what happened obviously is that the sweeper induced more break and a better outcome and then it was like, "Oh, I should switch to the sweeper." And like you're saying, it's just by producing that positive outcome with your suggestion makes people buy in and believe you a lot more.
2: Yeah, and in your and in your example, what made it so great is you like having the backup behind it you're able to visualize your recommendation in terms of the data behind it. You're able to test it and you're able to see results. So there's a difference between just optically seeing something then going into the verbal recommendation and then testing it, right? You have to test to make an effect. So in your example, it's it's great and it's very similar to what I did, right? You have to see it, think about it, assess it and then retest it. So your instance is exactly how any, in my opinion kind of successful change gets made.
0: Yeah, so why don't you actually, for everyone listening, dive into a couple of the actual metrics that you collected from each of the things you mentioned? So why don't you dive into a few of the pitching metrics that you dove into from the Soto? Why don't you dive into a couple of the offensive metrics from the blast motion and whatnot?
2: I mean, for Soto, it's very easy to get caught up in velocity. And a lot of pitchers specifically really often just look at that number, right? Like, how hard am I throwing? And don't get me wrong, like throwing hard is so cool, right? It's great. Everyone loves it. It's very important. (laughs) It's very important. I get that. I think for my instance, if you're a good hitter, you know, you can hit good pitching and you can hit hard pitching. So my opinion is if you're a pitcher who's kind of crafty, can control spin and control break, I just think you're very, very effective and often, in my opinion, more effective than someone who just pumps gas. So... When you had blast motion, you had of working in tandem, you were able to see on certain pitches, like when guys swung and missed, or when guys made hard contact, compared to the pitch, the pitches that were coming in, like what key variables matched. So I'll give you a good example. So, you know, if you have a guy thrown from the side who has like big horizontal movement or a guy vertical who has big drop, right, you can kind of pair that with that angle as it comes into the zone, or, you know, the time of barrel in the, in the, like, the zone and the plane of contact. And you're kind of able to assess the time at which the ball is kind of able to hit the bat and how it relates to the hitter as it approaches the pitch. So through that combination of practice, those are like key metrics I personally looked at. So in games, if you had a pitcher throwing sidearm or a guy who had a big drop, whenever it came time to structure the lineup or make like a pinch hitting recommendation, like I knew in the back of my mind, this player had certain key metrics that would optimally Maybe I'll not use the word optimally, you know, have a good opportunity to have the best result. Just it comes with overtime trial and error, seeing what matches up with what and seeing the outcomes from that.
1: To the point of throwing hard. Jake, what's the what's the name of the facility you're working at now? Uh Velocity. <laughs> there you
2: go. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Throwing hard is great. I just I just thought like if you're a good hitter, you can hit velocity. If you have spin. Depth break. I just think it makes it the pitching harder to hit.
0: Yeah. Another thing is that at the level that you were doing this at, most of the guys in your rotation probably threw similar velocities. So at that point, yeah. Right. So at that point, it's finding these little differentiators, right? If everyone's throwing 90 or 91, 92, 88, 89, right? And it's all in this similar range, but one guy has significantly more movement or command of a specific pitch, that's the guy that's going to be way more successful in competition.
2: Yeah. And you bring up a great point. I mean, I was at the division three level, right? We didn't have guys throwing in the nineties. Like those, those players went on to, to division one or to just bigger and better baseball. So you had a big variance in division three, right? We had a saying like everyone's division three for a certain reason, right? Whether it be you have uh, you know, you, you throw slow with junk or you like, there's, there's always something. And I think with pitching, there's a big variance. So I think you bring up a great point. Um, there is a big disparity in the talent, but also the skill, of the craft. So it makes it very interesting from the data. You're not just looking at the same thing over and over again.
0: I can tell that you're a data guy and my partner's a data guy because you guys both love the word variance. And I always know that when variance comes into play, that someone's dabbling in the data.
2: I did see Mark smile when I said that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And Jake and I have probably had a lot of conversations around fantasy football or other things where I've used the word variance. So I'm sure that's come in there as well and jake this goes back to the point that you were saying just now about if guys are throwing in a similar range it's kind of similar to what we said on the dan campbell episode about analytics and should you go for it or should you not and it's when there's such a small difference in that and it's like oh you should go with this because it's better than the other well what's the difference that we're talking about here like velocity is great and yeah if a guy throws 10 miles an hour harder that might be a no-brainer but for one mile an hour there might be something else you could look at. And RJ, to the point that you made about wanting to go back and test stuff. So for me, I was a rower in college and collecting data in rowing is a nightmare in and of itself. There are some ways to do it in the boat, but it's kind of difficult. And there's a lot of variables to control for at any given time, assuming we're rowing eights, which we're usually doing, you got eight different guys in a boat, each trying to row the exact same stroke at the exact same time. And on every stroke, you're trying to figure out Did that one work? And how does the next one feel? And how does this feel compared to the previous five? And maybe one person did something slightly differently on this. And you also have a lot of peers and guys at the same level. And maybe there's some level of seniority where seniors speak up in the boat a little bit more, but you also have plenty of freshmen or sophomores who definitely know what they're talking about. And to your point, that kind of comes from once you've generated some success there, it's definitely a little bit easier.
2: I think in your example, just a, I think an important point to be made as a comparison. So in rowing, as you're trying to collect the data, right? You, it's not like you make a stroke and then you stop the boat. Like you, you are continuing on a path of motion to an eventual finish line. So there's not a real opportunity of like controlling, right? Like you make a bad stroke, you can stop. You look at video, like in a competitive speed sport like rowing, that you just don't have that opportunity. Like in baseball, what makes things so great is you have that ability. Like you, you're in a simulation. You can't do this in games. You can't stop the game, but that's the beauty of practice, right? You test things out. You see what worked. You see what didn't work. And you have the opportunity to stop and think about it. Like, okay, throw that pitch again. Like, think about it this way. Think about your approach this way. You you can test things differently because, you know, you, you can isolate. And I feel like in a sport like rowing, that's maybe difficult, but in baseball, the, there's beauty in that.
1: Yeah. So to that point of being able to isolate some of the data and test it. You talked about some of the data that you did collect. Are you able to talk about some of the data science or machine learning techniques that you and the analytics team used? Were there certain choices that you made, modeling choices or otherwise? Why would you use those decisions compared to others? And if you want to speak to this too, is there anything you would do differently if, say, you were with, with an MLB team as opposed to a college team?
2: I guess I'll start with like the data science I did. I mean, I kind of viewed it as a partnership with the other coaches and not all of the coaches were data scientists or they all come from very different backgrounds and not data science. So I couldn't get too in depth because I feel like if I did, I was gonna have a very hard time communicating with them and I was just gonna have a hard time getting my point across. So I tried to keep things fairly simple and build from there. So like a very simple term, like a very simple model in data science is just standard regression, right? Mm -hmm. You're making a prediction based on certain inputs to assess an output. And you can jazz it up from there. You can do singular variable, multiple variables. You can weigh the variables differently to like to all see and predict an outcome. And to be a baseball analyst is you're really just helping make future predictions. No one can, no one actually knows the future. So you're helping predictions based on historical like background. So since I viewed it as a partnership, I wanted to get their take on everything. And because I wanted to keep it simple, I just started with regression. So I would start with it's a simple batting average over time to keep things very easy. Batting average, on base percentage. Coach, how much do you weigh this versus this? Because I needed their buy-in to like help make change. If I'm this 20 year old kid who just got told he's not good enough to keep playing, right? I have to figure out a way of trying to make change. And how do I do that together? So I have to go to the coaches. Well, what are things you want to see? What are things you don't want to see? You know, how do you weigh horizontal break as it relates to? balls in the dirt? How do you weigh vertical break as it relates to like pop-ups? Like, how do you assess things as you see the game? And through that, I mean, that's how it it started. But I think for me, regression was the key just because it was fairly simple. I could make it more difficult, but I just wasn't in a position of doing so. To answer the second part of your question, if I was at a higher level, I would go deeper into the numbers because I would have teams with me. I know that the teams at a whole would value the numbers probably greater than division three baseball team. Like, I would just have more freedom. I felt a little restricted because I was just on my own, a division three school trying to make change with an old school coach um, for the team we had. But if I was in a larger organization with much bigger resources, bigger stakes at play, and just more value on the data itself, I would go deeper into the numbers, do more in-depth modeling And really work on visualization. I think that's something in like data science and baseball data science, particularly, that's very hard is how do you visualize data? I just did kind of simple graphs because I, you know, with my coach and my players, and I would jazz it up over time, but I would really spend time learning how to visualize the data to help even better communication. I think if I was given another opportunity to do it over again, I would spend a lot more time on how to visualize what I'm saying.
1: That makes a ton of sense. To your first point about regression and wanting to use it for basically the ease of representation, where you can say, whether it's single variable regression or multiple variable, and you can say one unit of such and such input is worth X units of the output that we're interested in, that ease of representation is really important. And for me, when I was doing my master's program, I focused on machine learning and you can get really in depth on the academia side of things when it comes to machine learning. And the reality is in a lot of real world applications, be it finance or otherwise, so many people are going back to linear regression because you need to be able to know what you're really looking at. And you can use intense machine learning models till you're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, the portfolio manager probably be, wants to be able to justify, I'm making this decision because one unit of this is worth X units of output. And then to your point of if you were doing, you know, maybe if you were with an MLB team and guys wanted to really get into the weeds with it, it makes more sense that you would go that route.
2: I also think if I were with an MLB team, and this is very hard at the collegiate level, unless you have access to, you know, really phenomenal resources is, you know, I mentioned pitching, I mentioned hitting, I didn't really mention defense, and I think that's something that comes, but just by having access to better resources. Like if you go to MLB Stadium, they have these Hawkeye cameras. I'm sure everyone knows TrackMan and all that, or Statcast and things of that nature. That's one thing I missed out on in college. I just didn't have the resources for that. But that would be very interesting to go into, especially. I'll use the term variance once more at a lower level of baseball. Right, you likely have worse fielders, more errors. I mean, everyone's still very good college baseball is, You know, very competitive regardless. But to take a look at on the defensive side of things would be really interesting to go into. I just didn't have that opportunity.
1: Yeah. To the point of data visualization, I think that's a really important point, not just for coaches, but also for players, is you don't want to have to explain to Garrett Cole the math behind linear regression and why he should do one thing in front of another. You want to show him probably a graph And I'm not ripping on Garrett Cole. I'm sure he's a super smart guy. And he's obviously been very successful. And so he probably understands this stuff. Can you not talk about my ace like that, please? He's the first guy who comes to mind because he's our ace. I love him. Me too. Anyway, he is not the kind of guy whose time you want to waste explaining math to him. You want to be able to show him a quick couple of charts and say, we want you to make such and such changes because this is what it is going to look like in the future. And so I think that's super important yeah you want to
2: keep it simple you want to keep it concise i mean you want to be intelligent you want to believe in what you're saying and be like very intelligent with it but you're exactly right i mean you when you go to a player it's you want to be quick with it you got to be concise and you got to be efficient with what you say because unfortunately if you're not you just lose them they lose interest in believing in you so you just said you
0: mentioned quick efficient in terms of communicating to players and coaches so you get this data driven insight from all the numbers you're crunching and you get this outcome of how you want to you know possibly change something within the field or all that stuff kind of walk us through a step-by-step of how that process looked in terms of kind of going to a coach or a player and getting them to buy in
2: so i mean you're trying to affect change so that's a differential from what's existing So in order to like do that, you have to kind of show what you believe is wrong. So you have to take data from prior games. You have to take data from prior practices and say, coach, like as we experience, like as you've seen, like as we've lived together, these problems coming up. So you have to make someone like, believe your point of making change. So what's wrong with what's presently and prior happening. So you have to take that very quickly and say, oh, we lost this game because of these reasons, as you know, like X, Y, and Z went wrong. I think these changes could happen for the better, and here's why, you know, that's when you bring in a possible graph, that's when you do the regression, that's when you do analysis. And you say like, I think this would help us for these reasons. And the conversation has to be really no more than a few minutes, like coach, here's what was wrong. We need to make change for these prior, what we believe to be problems. Here's the data we've collected together, right? As we've seen play out, these things have worked successfully in the past, though they may not have led to wins. And this could help us in the future for X, Y, and Z reasons. I think it's worth it in these moments to test this. And as you succeed, you build that over time to it being kind of a constant in your organization. But to talk about communication, like you're making change. So you have to bring about what you believe to be the problems of the past, have someone believe you, right? Believe that point with you and work towards the goal together. But it's all about assessing the past to work towards the future.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And I think to kind of build off of that, what I realized in terms of bringing up the problems of the past is you have to be a little delicate with how you do that. You can't just – if I'm taking a pitcher and assessing his arsenal and what pitch would be good to add or subtract, I can't be like, you have a dog shit curveball. Like that's not how – because they're going to immediately clam up and get defensive, right? Of course, the way, yeah. the way The way that I liked to do it is – Let's say I had a guy who had a vertical forcing fastball and a splitter, but then he tried to throw a sweeper. Obviously, that one pitch is almost like an outlier because it doesn't work in that vertical movement profile. So probably hitters can pick up on it easier. So I would ask them, I'd be like, hey, you know, in your last summer outing, was your slider the pitch that got hit the most? And their response would be like, yeah. Like, how did you know that? And I was like, because X, Y, and Z, I think that we should add a curveball. It would be the better breaking pitch to blend with the rest of your arsenal. At that point, you've created buy-in because you tie it into their like their past experience, and all of a sudden they're they're in. But if you take a guy and you're like, "Hey, your slider sucks," they're ne- they're never going to be like, "Oh, okay, cool, let's go throw a curveball." So, like you're saying, it it needs to be a very delicate process of how you go about taking those data-driven insights and really implementing it into change.
2: Right. And if, I'm a, and if I'm a player and I have 10 coaches, right? I mean, you're a player with a certain skill set. You believe in yourself. You believe your talent level. And not all your coaches were like you, right? Not all of them played at high levels. Not all of them had your talent, right? So you as a player may say, what does this guy know? You know, he's coming to me with like this communication. He's talking to me this way. You know, this guy doesn't know anything. I'm going about my stuff because I believe in me which is great to have self-confidence, but like, yeah, not every coach was as talented as you. Not every coach was a five-star player, whatever it may be. So it's like, how do you communicate? And you communicate that through shared endeavor, right? That's winning. Like we all want to win. That's what we want to do. We want to win games. We want to win our conference. We want to do the best we can. So, you know, I'm not here to say, you know, you suck. And because if I say that to you, you're going to be like, you know, screw this guy. What does he know? Especially in my instance, right? I was a 20, 21 22, I wasn't good enough to play. So like, who am I to say, like, you're not a good player. So I had to approach it at, this is what has not worked for you in the past based on this data evidence. Like, let's work towards the future together. Because for me to say, your curveball sucks or like you throw a slow fastball, that's why it's getting hit over the fence every game. That just would never work for me. So from a coaching standpoint, you really have to think about how you communicate because you have to think about how the players perceive you and if you keep it together as a team towards a shared endeavor based on like past historical data, I think that's a really efficient way of getting it
1: done. And so for you, were the coaches, but also the players, receptive most of the time to the data that you were putting forward? Were there specific types of data that they were more or less receptive to? And finally, was there data that they reacted poorly to if it contradicted a core either coaching philosophy or playing philosophy that coaches or players had?
2: So yes, it was hard at first, because like I said, originally, right? people believe you after you succeed, people don't believe you until you have results. In my instance, that was ever true. Um, So in the beginning, when I would make recommendations or try to induce change, it was not well received, it wasn't executed upon, it was just not really thought of as much. Sometimes things would happen. Maybe it would go in my favor. Maybe it wouldn't go in my favor. No one's perfect, but you needed a consistent string of success to really have people believe in you. So like, I remember we had this weekend series against St. Lawrence college and upstate New York it was probably like 40 degrees. Um, we had lost a few weekends in a row. And like, you know, my coach basically said to me, okay, RJ, like make the lineup, or right? Do something, you know, kind of probably said, use some swear words in there, you know, don't, don't screw it up and whatnot. But, uh, that was my moment. So like I had one weekend to prove myself. And I think to answer one part of your question, what data was easier to get by than others, I think it's easy to make change in terms of implementing it on the field for offense than it is for pitching. I just think the mistakes for pitching hurt your team more than possible mistakes for offense. Like if you take a pitcher out at the wrong time, if you bring in the wrong pitcher, if you don't have the right pitching matchup, I think that can hurt your team much greater than you know, moving your three-hitter to the five-hitter or moving, like, your two-hitter down to seven. Because you know those guys are to get multiple chances throughout the game. I just think pitching was much harder to implement. But for me, it was offense where I was able to make greater change. So, yeah, like, I got the ability to restructure the lineup, and it worked. We succeeded. We won the series. I don't know if we swept it, but we won the series, and it really took off from there. And then core philosophies, I think – I mean, I don't think we as a team had, like, super core philosophies that we had to adhere to. I think we were just – working in pursuit of winning. So like if we found an opportunity to kind of arbitrage towards a win, we seeked it out. Like that's what we wanted to do. I don't think I ever got held back from my coaching staff saying like, we as a team never do this. But I do think it was harder to make change on pitching because I think making a mistake on the mound when it comes to decision making, like from the coaching staff, hurts your team much greater than a mistake being made on an offensive recommendation. I I just think, I don't even think it's close, truthfully. So that, that for me on offense were, was where I think I was really able to shine.
1: That's super valuable insight. If you had to boil it down from the perspective of a data analyst, what would you say is the hardest part of using data to win more games? The hardest part
2: isn't collecting it. The hardest part isn't analyzing it. The hardest part is communicating towards implementing. Like you have to communicate properly You have to know who you're talking to. You have to be concise, efficient. It goes back to what we said earlier, right? It goes back to, you know, who am I as a coach to make this recommendation to a player? I have to be smart with how I'm doing this because we all want to win at the end of the day. So the hardest part is communicating. And you could be the smartest guy in the room. You could be, you know, the greatest number cruncher that the world has ever known. But if you can't communicate your findings... You have a limit to what you can accomplish, especially in the game of baseball, where it's a team and communication is so important. When I mean, you see all the guys in the dugout of the major leagues games, like well, all these guys are there for a reason to work together. So by far, it's it's communicating. I think if you're a data scientist, a data analyst in the game of baseball, you have to learn how to communicate because I think without that, you can only
1: go so far. Even on the data side, it's a team sport, too. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah.
2: It's a team. It's a team effort all around.
1: Yeah. And I think
0: that is a value that really shines through in everything, in every aspect of baseball and every aspect of life is that you can be super talented and you can be this really smart individual, but if you can't communicate clearly and efficiently the way that you feel to people, sometimes it will just get lost.
2: Yeah. And in baseball, like you shouldn't be afraid to take risks. if You're like a data guy, right? I mean, You got to make change, right? And that's building upon perceived problems of the past. So in order to do that, you have to make change, which is there's always a risk. So, you know, communicating with risk, that's really what it is.
0: Yeah. And this was an awesome episode for me, being that I do the performance side of things and I try and use data and implement data, I think hearing your insights have definitely helped me in terms of how I would potentially want to efficiently implement them more with even younger athletes. Because I feel like it's a little bit easier to talk to professional college level athletes. But when you're dealing with high school guys or youth guys, um, that process could be a little different. So this episode um, and hearing your insights were really useful to me. So I hope our audience can Gain that insight as well from listening to the podcast. And we're super, super thankful that you came on the episode today. We were really happy to have you, man.
2: No, guys, thank you very much. This was great. No, this was amazing. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, as always, we will catch you next time on the Sweet Spot Podcast.